Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. Our regular viewers and listeners will know by now what we mean. But for the new, let me explain. We're watching all of Star Trek. That's right. All, all of, of Star it. Trek. <laughs> There's a lot. In order. We're doing it in chronological order. So this is still early days. We're watching Enterprise, which chronologically are the earliest stories in the Star Trek universe. And we're also taking a look at things in our world at the time of the original broadcasts. We'll take a deeper dive into what's going on in the episodes or in the era that they were broadcast, whatever catches our eye. And as far as whose eyes are doing the catching, it's me. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some picture books. I write some kids' books. And with me is my brother, Matt. He's the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm okay. Our regular viewers on YouTube will realize very quickly that my face is not moving. <laughs> how do you? How are you talking without moving your lips, Sean? <laughs> well, it takes a lot of practice, but my ventriloquism is coming along beautifully. Thank you for asking. I recently had some face surgery. Nothing major. This is not a face-off situation. But I was right about now, to ask. <laughs> yes, I now look amazingly like Nicolas Cage, and I'm dressed as a priest. And with the bandages on, I just figured our viewers would not enjoy that. Although now that we've started recording, I realized that I do look a little bit like Odo if I get the right profile. So <laughs> viewers might have enjoyed that. Just a reminder before we get into the episode, you can directly support the podcast. You can go to trekintime.show and there you can press a link and that link allows you to give us money and we appreciate it. But even if you're not able to do that, we appreciate whatever kind of support you're able to give. Listening, sharing, liking, subscribing, all of those things really do help. And we appreciate it all. And Matt, I understand you've got some listener feedback that yes. you want to share with us. Yeah, I thought this one was funny. This is from uh, our regular viewer, Roatrav. He wrote, okay, here's my one sentence wrong answer synopsis. This is from the last episode we did, which was about the big season finale from episode one. I mean, season mm -hmm. one. Uh, a Star Trek podcast captain and his older brother travel forward in time where they enjoy a pleasant brunch with a native creature who is half Trav and half robot. <laughs> I'd watch it. So it sounds very pleasant, Robo Trav. So thank very you very much. Very pleasant indeed, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other comment was from Mako. Um, I think it's unfair to compare Enterprise Season 1 to the entire arcs of Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, or Voyager. In fact, all three of those shows had pretty bad and slow first seasons and started developing in Season 2 or 3. Otherwise, I agree with you that the first season was lackluster and not the best. Um, I agree with that sentiment. Uh, like, the first two seasons of Next Generation are almost unwatchable. How all over the map it is it's some episodes are just absolutely horrible um but the show of course hit a stride in season three and four and five that just took it through the to the, to the stars literally and so it's like I, yeah. I do agree with the sentiment it's it's a little we're being a little harsh a little bit on the show and a lot of people are harsh on the show for the season one and even a little bit of season two uh but the show for me as we're going to find out as we get further into it i i like where this show ends up going it's like it, yeah. it find it does find its stride eventually I think that I I absolutely agree with that comment as well. Thank you, Mako, for for dropping that in there. I would also say that 
it's hindsight being 2020, it's very easy yeah. for us to look back and say, oh, they should have done this, they should have done that. It's very easy to, to be critical and pick things apart. I don't think, though, it's just a case of looking back and comparing season one and its failures against the entire story arc of Next Generation. I also think that part of it is an unintentional bias that Matthew and I may be exhibiting, which is born of the amazing golden era television that we're currently living in. True. And I think that I do this and I think Matt might do it as well. There's a little bit of a jaundiced view at television from an earlier era comparing it to when we have TV shows coming out of the gate like The Mandalorian. Foundation. Or Foundation, which if our listeners and viewers aren't watching Foundation, you absolutely have to check it out. It is, it is a TV series a la Dune. It is about empire and the failures of empire. And it is with special effects and story and storytelling techniques that are remarkable. We've become accustomed to that. And now we're going back and watching something from the early 2000s where network television, and at this point, this is not just network television, this is UPN. So this is effectively a failed network attempt to take advantage of their most famous franchise, but do it in a way that is going to capture a new audience, but also is going to very naturally be compared to things that were high levels of success shortly before. So Mako, you're right. There are a number of reasons why our looking at this may be a bit unfair. However, I would also say there's a frustration when I watch some of these episodes that it feels as if the producers and the makers of the show themselves were forgetting that their viewers were already very aware of what Star Trek was. Mm -hmm. And they seem to come at it in ways, and I think today's episode, spoiler, not a fan, today's episode... <laughs> Today's episode is one of those where it just feels like, like do you realize who your audience is here? Um, and so that's where some of this comes from for me. Mm -hmm. So tip my hand a little bit about today's episode. Today's episode is Carbon Creek. This is the second episode of the second season. And it was, oddly enough, filmed before the first episode of the season. So this was one that they had crafted probably initially some of it had probably been spitballed during season one for them to be able to do this one first when episode one was written just weeks after the cliffhanger from season one. Yeah. So this one must have already been in the works in some fashion. There must have already been some pieces put in place. And to me, it feels very much like that. That's part of the struggle for me of this episode is that it feels like it could fit right into the boggy middle of season one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Matt, do you want to give us a quick synopsis? Sure. Uh, T'Pol tells the story of first contact between humans and Vulcans in 1957, far earlier than the officially recognized date. And I'll add to that, 
or did it happen? Because <laughs> that's kind of the thing they try to, <laughs> dot, to dot, do dot. in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, what did you think of that synopsis? Uh, technically correct, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> misses a whole lot of the nuance of what they were trying to do in the episode. Well, that that's my synopsis. I wrote that. Why don't you take a look, quickly share with our listeners the okay. synopsis from Wikipedia. Okay, this one... Hold on. Oh, boy. Yes. Good luck with okay. the grammar. It's a yeah, lot of your, fun. Your, yours is a lot more succinct. This episode features a flashback story as told by the main cast character, T'Pol, who tells the story of first contact between humans and Vulcans, which actually happened far earlier than officially recognized than the officially recognized date. Her great-grandmother, Tamir, also played by Jolene Blaylock, Crash landed on Earth in 1957, shortly after the launch of Sputnik. Really rolls off the tongue as far as it's, the synopsis. That's so well yeah. written. Yes. yes, yours was a little more of a laser focus. Yeah, <laughs> but but yes. So this episode was the teleplay was by Chris Black. The story was by Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, and Dan O'Shannon. And for sitcom fans. The name Dan O'Shannon may be sticking out. Like, why do I feel like I know that name? Well, this Dan O'Shannon is the Dan O'Shannon who was a producer on Frasier. This episode was born of Dan O'Shannon having a Star Trek idea and sharing it with his friend, Rick Berman, who was more than happy to entertain the idea that was provided by Mr. O'Shannon. The difficulty I have here is I think that is part of the problem with the episode is that this feels very sitcom-y. Very. It, it almost seems very piloty. Yes. And third rock from the sun. It's third rock from the sun meets Star Trek. And yeah. it is, as we get into the the plot a bit, we'll talk about it more. But it feels very much like it's set up more for us to get humor out of the interactions of aliens around what they do and don't know about TV dinners, as opposed to having actual impact on the characters that at this point, everybody involved should know that we care about Archer and the crew of the Enterprise. The story is it unwinds doesn't really seem to be focused on the characters we know. Nope. But we will get into that. This originally aired on September 25th, 2002, and had 4.84 million viewers. So roughly around the same number of viewers as tuned in for episode one, which is not a great sign. The number one song at the time that this aired, Matt, you were still dancing to Dilemma, <laughs> Nellie and Kelly Rowland. And when you went to the movies, you were still enjoying Barbershop. It made another $12 million. It made about $20 million the week previous. And Barbershop is, of course, the comedy starring Ice Cube, Anthony Anderson, Keith David, and Cedric the Entertainer. And on television, well, a paltry 34 million people were tuning in to watch Friends this week. I still don't know how that show managed to stay on the air with paltry numbers like that. And in the news this day, September 25th, 2002, the New York Times reported that Great Britain's Prime Minister, 
Tony Blair was saying the Iraqis could launch chemical warheads in minutes. Britain asserted today that the Iraqi government of President Saddam Hussein could launch chemical or biological warheads within 45 minutes of an order to use them and acquire a nuclear weapon in one to five years. The claims were made in a 50-page report intended to bolster the Bush administration's case against the Iraqi leader and released today a few hours before Prime Minister Tony Blair outlined to British lawmakers his case for war, if necessary, to make Iraq disarm. Won't go too deeply into the long-term implications of that, but it would turn out that all of that was not true. Nope. Spoiler alert. Into today's episode. This episode, the first of the season with an actual date, April 12th, 2152, starts off with Captain Archer, Commander Tucker, and Subcommander T'Pol having dinner to celebrate the first anniversary of T'Pol's assignment aboard Enterprise. I actually really like this opening. Me too. I thought that the, the setup being an anniversary in which T'Pol is even entertaining drinking wine which up to this point she has not done so. And the repartee between all of them is very clear in Archer's suggestion that the previous record for a Vulcan serving aboard a human ship was only two weeks, and she corrects him to say it was 10 days. (laughs) There is very natural humor here. There's a familiarity and a comfort here. And especially when you compare the early days of Enterprise Trip's response to T'Pol is you can tell he genuinely likes her. He enjoys her company. He is teasing her. He doesn't expect a response back in similar form. He is feeling very open, it's obvious, in saying to her, oh, here's how you are aboard this ship. But he's not looking to do anything other than just letting her know in that way, I care about you. I'm glad you're here. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have any other first officer or science officer aboard the vessel. It's at this point that they refer to her service history. And there is a strange moment of the captain revealing something about her service record, which there'd be no way that your boss would reveal to no. another colleague the details that he goes into here. But he starts to pump to Paul for information about how come you took time off while you were serving in San Francisco to go visit Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. And thus begins a very awkward conversation. And I don't mean awkward between the characters. I mean awkward for us, the viewers. (laughs) As her boss is basically pinning her to the wall to reveal why she would go to Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. Yeah, you will tell me personal information. You will tell me personal information now. (laughs) I would, I would... I, I'm gonna I'm gonna open up the comments section early. I'm gonna invite our listeners or viewers to share times when their boss demanded from them information about why they were going on vacation, when they were going, and where they were going. Share and those awkward stories <laughs> and who they were doing it with. Share those awkward, terrible stories in the comments section, please. You can leave out whatever details will embarrass you, but I'm I'm very curious. Has anybody ever suffered the way Paul must have been suffering in this moment, being forced to reveal why she was going to Carbon Creek, 
Pennsylvania. And I can't say the phrase Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania enough. I'm going to say it as often as possible. (laughs) So she makes reference to, she was interested in seeing the place of first contact. And both the humans immediately scoff and say, you're being an idiot. We all know first contact was in Montana and it was a century later. And she says, no, it was actually in Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. And I love the fact that you have two humans who are coming to terms with the fact that humanity has only recently discovered that it is not alone in the universe. Scoffing at the idea that she might know something about Vulcans visiting Earth. (laughs) Before they actually... Scoffing at it. Just absolutely just like, oh, you idiot. We all know there's a statue where the first contact took place. So thus begun the episode where T'Pol says, would you like me to tell you a story? And she then begins to talk about her great-grandmother, who is Tamir. And Tamir was a member of a four-Vulcan crew, which was studying Earth from orbit in 1957. And they were there because of having detected the launch of Sputnik. So the Vulcans are there to take a look at humanity in its first, literally the first effort to start putting things into space, which would lead to humans tiptoeing into the larger community. Very conveniently, something bad happens aboard the Vulcan ship and they have to crash land. No explanation. Mm -hmm. No Mm -hmm. deeper explanation. Just get them. They have to get on that planet for this story to take place. Where do they crash land, Matt? Carbon Creek. I think you're, well, you forgot. It's Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. Sorry, I left out the Pennsylvania. That's the important part. Right off the bat, there is a depiction of Vulcans in the story, which doesn't mesh with the depiction of Vulcans in the era of Enterprise. This is the part that I wish this episode had dealt with. This was the missed opportunity, I think, of this episode, that the Vulcans, as shown in this episode, are not as with as not as tightly wound as yeah. the Vulcans of T'Pol's era. And I wish that for us, the viewer of the episode, the focus had been more on, was there a point at this 1950s stage of Vulcans where they were not quite as repressed as we know? And might that be something that T'Pol was exploring, having possibly personal journals of her great-grandmother? Is this something that would have an impact on T'Pol now that I think would resonate beautifully in her growing understanding of what it means to not only be Vulcan, to be Vulcan around humans. Mm -hmm. And if she in this story was perhaps for the first time reevaluating stories of her great grandmother and experiencing this story almost as if she was learning it for the first time, Mm -hmm. that I think would have an impact on the current story of enterprise that would resonate and make sense. 
This episode does not go into that. This episode does not focus on the differences of depictions of Vulcans in the 1950s as compared with what we're used to on this show. Instead, it is simply they crash on Earth, their captain is dead, Tamir is now in command of the crew, and at first they are just camping out trying to stay away from any sort of interaction with any humans. They are effectively following a prime directive mm-hmm. and referring to we cannot contaminate this planet, the culture, and there is concern about as one of the members of the crew says, it's Mestral who points out, is it going to be a problem if humans find skeletons that are clearly not human? There's concern here that this they don't quite know what to do in the situation and they've reached out, but they don't even know if their communication has, has been received. So reluctantly, Tamir has to follow Mestral's arguments that they should go to the nearest human enclave, which turns and out to be Carbon Creek, Carbon Pennsylvania. Creek Pennsylvania. That's but, right. But here, here's where my first issue with this, this, this series comes up, this episode. <laughs> you brought up how this whole episode has an issue because it's focusing on characters we've never seen before and we will never see again. And we want to see Archer. We want to see Trip. We want to see T'Pol. The one ray of sunshine is that we have Tamir, which is basically just, it's T'Pol. Um, so it's like you could have a kind of emotional connection there, but she ends up not being the main character of this episode. It really focuses on Mistral. So why they decided to focus on this, this random new guy and not on Tamir, I don't completely understand. But the, my biggest issue, this is one thing that's brought up a lot for people who don't like Star Trek, which is, how are they talking to each other? Like, like no problems. There's no universal translator here. How are these three Vulcans absolutely fluent in English? They've never, they've never stepped foot on the planet. They've never had communication with humans. They've never done that kind of thing. This is the first time they've been there. And yet yeah. they, they walk into the town and they're just like having conversations with people. And it was like, okay, we're just going to gloss over the fact that they're talking <laughs> in perfect yeah. English. I think that this I think that this episode steps f- with both feet firmly planted into original series territory. It goes well, full on into they can go to a planet and communicate without problem with the native inhabitants. They can simply steal some clothes and blend in beautifully. It even evokes Spock's use of a stocking wool cap to cover up his ears. That's a throwback to but original series episodes where that was how Spock would hide his Vulcan. But the, but but the I I talked about this when I read the your initial description. The episode toys with to Paul saying, "Do you want me to tell you a story?" And the question is up of is she just making this up and just literally telling them a story or is right. this something that actually happened? They hinted that so subtly in the episode a couple of times. I thought if they had leaned into that more and played with that a little bit more, it would help to offset this issue that I'm having because if she's telling them a story, of course, she's kind of making this up as she goes and it's like, okay, they're talking to them and everything like that. So it's like, you're going yada, yada, yada. They're walking to the town. That makes sense. 
But if this is, I don't want to give anything away for the end, but they basically hint that this did actually happen at the end. And if that's the case, then it's like, this makes no sense. So to, to me, it's like a major plot hole where if it's made up, you can kind of understand why it's playing out this way. But if it's not made up, how the hell did they walk into this town <laughs> with fluent English? Right. <laughs> so the setup here, it seems very invested on giving us a good sense of what Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania is like. And, and I'll say top to bottom, the production on this episode is actually really good. It's top notch. It's, it's, this is like movies style storytelling. It feels slowly paced. And I think as far as it's, as storytelling goes, I actually like what the story does. And in isolation, I like what the story does. My, heavy response to it comes from it doesn't feel like it belongs within the series correct as opposed to it's not well done i think that as far as fun moments and entertaining moments i like i i like mistral as a character i like that he is boldly looking at we have an opportunity here to really find out more about these people than we ever have Tamir is very distrustful. The third member of their crew is extremely reluctant, although by the end of their time on Earth, they make a, he's working effectively as a handyman and they make a beautiful joke. At the beginning, he is complaining about the fact that he is constantly being called to repair stuff for this woman. We never see the woman. We just know he's constantly being called to repair stuff for her and he finds her annoying. And by the end, when they are on the verge of actually being able to get off of Earth, he is repairing a vacuum cleaner as a favor to her before they disappear. Mm-hmm. So I liked the fact that there's this little mini arc for their curmudgeonly crew member who doesn't think spending time with the humans is worth it at all. He's actually found a soft spot for this woman and he's repairing her vacuum cleaner one last time. But the the development of the atmosphere for the town, I think, is beautifully rendered and Mestral leads them first into Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. He then is also the one who's the first to engage. He's willing to, as Matt said, they speak fluent English when they get into the uh, tavern where they meet one of their main counterparts who is Maggie. She owns the tavern. Her son is is another element of the story where he is depicted as not really having a place in his future in Carbon Creek. He aspires to other things. He's extremely intelligent. He has earned a scholarship. He is potentially going to be able to leave Carbon Creek and go do, they set it up as he is destined for bigger things. Yep. Another element of the story that I wish had had some sort of impact on something in the future. It would have been nice if there had been just something about him that meant in the future, in Archer's era, they discover that, oh, this is the guy who did X. Right. Without this story, we have no warp core. Without this story, like, it turns out this is Archer's great-great-grandfather. Something, anything, but we don't get any of that. What we get is, oh, he's he, he dreams of doing these great things and exploring and researching for the, for the very desire just to know, just to learn. Mm-hmm. So what we see is Mestral begins to have a relationship with Maggie, which goes beyond 
simply curiosity. He clearly has feelings for her. It's a very Vulcan love story, which for viewers of the series who know all the other series, I think having this kind of Vulcan human romance kind of hits a soft spot because you're looking at it from the lens of like, this is kind of like what Spock's parents would have exactly experienced. There's a, there's a kind of tenderness to it. Her confusion of his response, his withheld response being one of intellectually processing this all prior to any kind of emotional or romantic processing, I think is well done. And the larger world of Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania is, it's a mining town. It is, the, the industry there is coal. And so it is depicted as like, this is a blue collar, hardworking community. They trust one another. They support one another. There's not really, I'm so relieved that there was never the, you all are a bunch of outsiders and you should get out of here. There was no yep. ruffian element to this. This was really a story about, and and I think the people who who like this story framed it nicely as being one about difference and acceptance. Yeah, the town is very accepting of these newcomers. The town, yeah, they, they wander yeah. in. Nobody knows who they are. They walk into the tavern for the first time. The room goes silent. Everybody stares at them because nobody knows who they are. But then by the time we're coming to the end of their time in Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania, you see Mestral is actually going on a date with Maggie. And as he walks across a parking lot, he passes somebody. We don't know who it is. There's a stranger passing the other way who raises his hand in a friendly wave. And Mestral nods and smiles and waves back. And so it's this very clear, like they fit in, they've been accepted. And I think that that is a lovely element of this. But, but to, to go in the relationship between Mistral and uh, Maggie, there's a scene in the show between the two of them in a car that, I don't know about you, Sean, but that scene felt like it took three times longer than it needed to. It, it was like the pacing of the entire show, I thought was very good. But that car scene felt like somebody hit the brakes really hard and just like it came to a screeching halt it was so drawn out and awkward. It was more awkward than I remembered. It was just like, can this end already? This is making me uncomfortable and it doesn't make any sense. And why why are these why are these long pauses like still in here? And there's like no emotional acting going on. He's a Vulcan. He's just sitting there in the car. And it's like, so I'm not getting that actorly like emotional response of seeing characters having some kind of inner monologue. It's just like he's sitting there like a lump in the car and these long drawn out moments. It was, I don't know about you, but that whole scene for me was just a big record scratch. I, I disagree. For me, I thought that that scene worked and I wish there had been more made of their relationship. I wish that we had seen oh, more of a drip, drip, drip throughout the episode that yes. maybe the, the crux of that scene could have been stretched out a little bit more. And I'd like to point out that the actors in that, Mestral is played by J. Paul Bomer, who had appeared in other Star Trek up to this point. And Maggie is played by Ann Cusack, who is, of course, Joan and John Cusack's sister. So the two of them, I think, are doing a very nice job, especially Ann Cusack, who's having to play this very confused, I thought you were into me sort of moment mm -hmm. with Bomer's, I like Mestral in his, like I said, this does not seem Spock-like. It does not seem no. to Paul-like. There is a curiosity that comes with a smirk from him. He is open to this emotional connection and he responds 
positively to the emotional connection, referring to her unexpected kiss as very pleasant. And when she says, I was hoping for something more than pleasant, he says, well, I did say very pleasant. So there's a humor in the writing. Again, uh, something Matt and I referred to at the beginning, it feels very sitcom-y. It mm-hmm. feels very third rock from the sun without being huge, broad punchlines. This feels a little bit like somebody pitching a serious take on third rock from the sun to say, what if a bunch of aliens tried to live in a small mining town in 1950s America? And I like the characters. They have their third partner in the, in their crew who does when he describes that the widow's son refers to him as Mo because of his haircut, (laughs) there's a lot of great humor that comes out of that. And it's, again, it sets up so much about characters we don't know. And it culminates in there being an accident in the mines. And this is a moment where okay, we, we shouldn't do anything is the argument of both Tamir and their third partner. Mestral is clear. I'm going to go help. I'm going to do what I can. Don't stop me. And so he heads out and Tamir reluctantly has decided to help. And so she is using the technology that they have from their ship to be able to read through the rock of the mines and be able to guide Mestral deeper into the mines where he can use one of their weapons to actually phase through a wall and gain access to the area where the miners are trapped and they're able to rescue a dozen miners. And at this moment, that is not the crux of the show. That is simply like there is... It felt very rightly of somebody has to be in danger. Something has to happen. And that's what they... They needed action. They wanted they an action scene. In. Here's, yes. here's your action scene. Yep. Yes. That's because the actual crux of what the show revolves around is a lot quieter. There's a scene where it's now known that Tamir and Mestral and they will be leaving. It's They've notified the humans that they are leaving. There is a interesting literal blaming of the Tellarites for when the trio gets communication from a Vulcan ship. We are going to be there in two days. We got your communication via a Tellarite ship that had picked up your distress call, but it took them a long time to get to us. Just throwing the Tellarites under the bus. It's <laughs> They've literally been on Earth for months at this point. Yeah. So... When Maggie's son discovers that Tamir is going to be leaving, he goes to her and says, I will miss you. I've enjoyed you being around. And he reveals that his time in Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania is not as short-lived as they assumed it was, that there's a problem with him being able to afford going off to school, and that if he doesn't take advantage of his scholarship that he has earned, there's no guarantee he will earn it again the following year. So... In this scene, he is effectively revealing, it looks like I'm never going to leave Carbon Creek or be able to do what I hope to. And he refers to his time spent in the library where he literally will just pick books up at random to learn about the things that they have inside. And this touches something in Tamir, which drives her to do the only thing that a rational being would do at this time. 
she goes to, and sells the technology break, of Velcro. To break the prime directive and go sell Velcro. In Pittsburgh, <laughs> okay. Pennsylvania. All yes. right. Okay. Here's a little fun fact for people, which is, is built into the writing of this. Velcro was actually invented by a European, but his name was Mestral. So they have named this Vulcan after the inventor of Velcro, but they didn't name the right Vulcan because they've just depicted that Tamir sells it, not Mestral. So, uh, yeah. yada, 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 yada. <laughs> She's got a wad of cash. Yeah. She takes the wad of cash and puts it in Maggie's tip jar. She does not put it into Maggie's hands. She is not taking credit for this. I don't know why that was important. It felt like a missed opportunity. I felt like Tamir's character at that point. I, I feel like it was, I think it was because she didn't want to have that emotional interaction with her. And also there might be a chance that the, she would say, oh no, we can't accept this from you. You know, that whole thing, like by being anonymous and putting it in the jar, it's like she can't refuse it. And then she also avoids having some kind of emotional conversation with her. So it's like, yeah. I, to me, it made perfect sense why she did it that way. For me, it felt a little bit like they've spent months among the humans and she's able to not go as far as Mestral, but she does go a little bit farther than she expected. I felt like it would have been a nice moment for her to say thank you for your hospitality and hand her an envelope and to leave before Maggie opens the envelope. Something right. that would have been a, a moment of the way she leaves it in the tip jar felt a little anticlimactic to me. And okay. I think for me, it would have been like Maggie, I would have appreciated Maggie knowing that Tamir had done this, that Maggie would, would, and that her son would know. And, and again, I would have liked it if it had been then tied up in some sort of connection again to Archer's era with them discovering something about Maggie and her son that was important to them and their lives. But we do not get that. Instead, we go back to the dinner where Archer and Tucker just simply can't believe this story and... You're skipping over that when they leave, Mistral stays behind. Oh, yes, yes. That's, that, that's a key point, is that Mistral stays well, on Earth, to which Archer and, and Tripp are like, you can't tell me that there was a Vulcan just wandering around in the United States for the rest right. of his life. That, that doesn't I guess, make sense. I guess the reason why I didn't refer to that is because it doesn't matter. Because, again, none of this has an impact well, on Archer's experience or anybody's experience from yes. the Enterprise. It doesn't, it doesn't tie back in any way. He doesn't say, you can't tell me there was a Vulcan wandering around the world in the 1950s having adventures and, and doing things. And then they later discovered that there was somebody named Mestral who was critical in doing something. They don't do that. So yeah. for me, that is a it's almost like it dropped out of my head because it doesn't have a larger impact. But, but to me, this is where it ties back to the whole point of they tried to play around with the thing of, you told me to tell you a story. Because even at this point when they're saying to her, there's no way a Vulcan was wandering around for the rest of his life 
on earth. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And then she's like, well, you told me to tell you a story. So it's kind of like they're playing around with the idea of she's making this up. And so it's right. like, if that's the case, it doesn't matter that there's no tie back and there's no actual things happening. But they don't go all the way with it. They didn't play it enough. They didn't play it up enough for me to make that tease have a meaning to it. And then right at the end, they cut to Paul and her like her her room doing a meditative moment, unfolding a blanket, and she's got the handbag from the 1950s of Tamir. To which, for me, this was just like the car scene for me. This is another major record scratch. It was like, wait, you were just playing around with the fact that she made all of this up to tell them a story. Right. And then the one thing that you do to tie it back to, no, this really happened, was not what you're talking about, Sean, which is... Yeah oh, Mistral was actually did this thing on Earth and blah, 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 and they found like the actual evidence of it. It was just like, oh, she's got this handbag and she happens to keep it with her on the Enterprise? It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. It's almost like it's a twist ending. An untwist. Twilight, Twilight Zone-ish, like, bump, bump, bump. You're supposed to feel like, like, oh, it was true yeah. the whole time. But... Again, it, it means nothing to their experience. This doesn't unlock, a, uh, this is, isn't providing them with a solution to a problem. This isn't providing them with some unknown truth about their own existence and their world. It doesn't, it doesn't change how they're interacting with the world around them. Mm -hmm. It is, as you said, she is on some level teasing them, which I have problems with the idea of her teasing them in this way mm -hmm. and for no greater purpose it feels very mid-season season one-ish to me and yep. and i think that that's um while the episode at the time was was pretty well received and and some people really love this episode i found myself thinking i can appreciate the storytelling of the episode on its own but as part of the larger story of Enterprise, I just don't think it has a place. My my takeaway from this episode was I like it. I like I do like this episode. It's a it's there's a charm to it that I really liked. I did like a lot of the characters, but just like you, it, the fact that it has really no tie to the main series at all was kind of like why did we go in this diversion? Like, what, why, what is its purpose in what we've been seeing for the past year? It, it's, but it's good. It reminded me a little bit of, there's a new show on Apple TV Plus, um, Mythic Quest, which yeah. is about a video game company. And for those who don't know, I used to work in video games. So, and I can tell you 100%, hand on a Bible, that show is <laughs> very accurate <laughs> to what it's like to work in the video game industry. But, um, I, I love that show, but there's in the season one and season two, what they, they, that show did in season one, there was a standalone episode that had none of the actual characters from the rest of the series. And it was like a out of time going back 30 years. And it was just this beautiful, incredibly well-written and filmed and acted just an astounding episode, like Emmy winning, award-winning worthy episode that just was like this, like, wait, what, how does the, does, how, how does that tie to the main characters and the plot line at all? And it takes a while for that one to sink in as to like, why we're seeing what we're seeing. It, it does tie in. It, it's a parallel story to what we've been seeing over the entire season. The, the two people that run the video game studio 
have a mirrored relationship to this flashback episode that has nothing to do with them, but there's yeah. a relationship there. So there's there's a parallel that draws in there as to like, oh, I understand why this episode happened because it's paralleling what we're seeing today and it's setting up what's going to come. So it's like, yeah. even though it wasn't the original characters, that's what this episode is missing. There's no parallel. There's no yeah. tie back. There's nothing that kind of gives you that sense as to why we saw this now. Why are you, sh- yeah. why are you showing me this? Yeah. I think if you were to, using that as, as your breakdown of this episode, I think is very smart. And I would, I would say that if this was something where it had revolved around to Paul's grandmother or perhaps her grandfather to say that that person had an experience with somebody on earth who was a human who at first was a distrusted element a scene as almost a barbaric element a boss if right. if mestral had worked in the mines as they show him doing but had a boss that he slowly realized oh this guy genuinely cares about the well-being of the people who work underneath him he's willing to sacrifice himself in order to keep them safe that kind of relationship would then parallel to Paul and Archer. Mm-hmm. That would be an opportunity to show the kind of parallels that you're talking about. Yep. Especially if in the story, if you keep the collapse of the mine and this ancestor of Paul's goes in to rescue them and discovers that that person in charge died, but died to save some other members and then commits themselves in that moment to, I should do what I can to honor this human. Mm-hmm. That then becomes a nice parallel with how T'Pol might be reevaluating her relationship with Archer. Right. That would have tremendous impact on me as a viewer to say, like, she's now investing herself into the story of her grandparent and saying, I realize that that's where I stand in conjunction with my captain. Yep. Unfortunately, this does not do that. Nope. I am curious from our listeners and viewers, how did all of this hit you? Did you find it to be well told and have a place within the lore as you see it? Or like me and like Matt, did you feel like, okay, it's well told and all that? Or did you not think it was well told, but see it as kind of anachronistic, but still worth your time? Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Matt, before we sign off, do you have anything you want to remind people about? What do you have coming up on your other channel? Actually, I want to pitch Still to be Determined, which is you and I on another podcast where we talk about the Undecided with Matt Farrell videos and the feedback we get from the viewers and the comments. Um, it's a fun kind of like recap of kind of looking back at episodes I put out. Um, I really enjoy enjoy that. I think other people that maybe listen to this might enjoy that. So be sure to check out Still to be Determined. It's pretty much where everywhere podcasts are. It's also on YouTube, so you can watch us there too. As for me, please check out my website, seanfarrell.com. You can also look for my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at your local bookseller. You can go in and ask for them, and they are available everywhere. Thank you for checking them out if you do. A reminder, you can visit trekintime.show. You can directly support the podcast there. You can also support us just by continuing to do what you're doing right now. Subscribe, listen, share us with your friends. All of that really does help. Don't forget, if you have any comments or corrections, please do reach out. 
You can find our contact information in the podcast notes. You can also leave a comment directly below the video in the comment section. Matt and I really do love Star Trek. We love talking about these episodes, but we also understand we're only human. And sometimes we're going to say they use the warp engines when it's really the impulse. We, we're going to screw things up. It happens. Oh, yeah. We're yeah. human. Or Let us we? know if you spot it. <laughs> Please remember to su subscribe. Remember to like. Remember to share. And to remember, most importantly, to come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody.